Well, this morning we're going to be continuing on, uh, on kind of uh, the, the statement or mission statement that we've been moving through of who are we as a church. And uh, we are going to be covering as uh, moving through the, the live, teach, tell model. Uh, Chris, if you were here last week, uh, covered on what it is to, uh, to live and to teach the gospel. And today we're going to be talking about the aspect of telling and, uh, and what does it look like. And again, as a reminder, um, this, is, this is a statement, mission statement from the church that we've drawn from Matthew uh, 28 in the Great Commission. Uh, and and the, the short side of it is to live, teach, and tell the gospel so that all may know the living God. That is, that is the aim. Uh, and so especially we wanted to stop, and as, as we're launching off and as we're beginning South Spring and creating a culture of what it is to be this church, uh, we want to continue to focus and centralize our thought around this message, that everything we're doing, whether we're uh, living out in our lives, whether we're teaching uh, in words or in actions, or whether we're just speaking or with whatever we're doing, live, teach, and telling the gospel so that all might come to know the living God. Now, he expanded, Chris, Pastor Chris last week expanded upon this, and if you missed last week, uh, don't forget, you can always go online and check out any of our sermons and uh, catch back up on that one, uh, but Chris expanded upon the concept of live and the concept of teach, and in live, he, he said that it is a life that we are living of worship and wisdom, and of teaching, it should be a teaching, a life of submission and shepherding. And this week, we're going to expand on the telling part, and the telling part expanded all out is a life of courage and compassion. And then next week, we're gonna, Chris is going to be back, and he's going to be talking about the gospel specifically in relation to that. Uh, but today, we're going to look at this concept of, of compassion and of courage. And those two kind of hybrid together, uh, we're going to be checking out a story that's probably familiar to all of us. Uh, and one of my favorite stories, because it's actually one of the uh, earliest Bible stories I was ever taught, and it actually probably introduced me into the biblical character who I find myself most aligned with. I don't know if y'all find this uh, when you read God's Word, but then in, in a lot of times, as I'm reading through there, the characters and the personalities that I'm, that, uh, that I'm reading, I try to relate to people so that I can kind of put my mind in the right, uh, the right kind of understanding of saying, okay, this is kind of like, this character is kind of like this person, and so that helps me when I think about them. I can then read scripture and hopefully get it in a, in a little bit more accurate presentation. And so the, the character we're going to be looking at this morning is, is that of Peter. And, uh, and again, Peter is certainly one of my favorite, uh, favorite biblical characters. Um, and I think why he's one of my favorite is, uh, is a little bit because of his personality. Uh, and so I want to start kind of a little bit kind of a reminder, refresher course for us about who actually Peter is. Um, we have to remember that Peter was called out to be one of the disciples. Uh, he was a, a fisherman. Uh, we, should, we should think of fishermen in this time era in the near ancient east as, um, as ones who are a little bit more rough around the edges, a little bit more gritty, maybe not nearly so polished. Uh, it certainly was a position that wasn't very prized or wasn't very highly sought after. They were kind of a, a lower blue-collar blue uh, class worker. Um, there were ones that, that uh, didn't have a lot of esteem uh, and in and amongst the people. There was, a, there was actually a Hebrew phrase that kind of like what we would maybe say of uh, those who would keep their company of like eating with dogs. They would actually have a phrase that was very similar. Uh, that was those who ate with fish. And it, and it was because even fish in the Hebrew cultures had kind of a, a lower distinction. And they weren't even all that prized. And so these fishermen, those who spent all their time around fish, uh, kind of ennobilized that. They weren't really highly Sought after, they weren't really highly esteemed. They were kind of the the, the peripheral around the culture, uh, a little bit rough around the edges. 
Um, and, so I, I, and so that's kind of where Peter comes from. And then we have this remarkable miracle story where, where Jesus goes and he interacts even with the fishermen uh, and coming in and, and teaching the crowds. And then, then we have the famous calling of Peter and some of the original disciples where he tells them to cast their net onto the other side and they pull up all this fish and, and, he, and he declares to them, you are, who are fishers of fish, now come and be fishers of men. And we have Peter dropping immediately all of his nets, all of his past, all of his life, uh, and following Jesus. And I think that's kind of our first glimpse into Peter, and that tells us, I think, a little bit about his personality. And his personality is going to be key in understanding, especially the story today. Uh, but Peter seems to be, if I, if I was to pick a defining character trait for Peter, it would be somewhere in, somewhere in between kind of impetuous or impulsive or spontaneous. He always seems to be the one who kind of speaks first or acts first. And we kind of see this not only in the calling of Peter, but we see this throughout all of our New Testament with Peter, right? Whenever it is, when, and time and time again, uh, when you come to Jesus talking to the disciples, Jesus says something and he prepares something and then he kind of closes out his teaching. And then who's first to always speak up? Well, it's Peter. Time and time again, it's Peter just saying, being the first to speak, always being kind of the, maybe the spokesman of all of the rest of the disciples. And, uh, and he's always acting, he's always speaking, and sometimes, for Peter's credit, that's amazing. That's exactly what should happen. You shouldn't have any more thought, you shouldn't have any more hesitation, you should jump in and be doing this. And then sometimes, in Peter's case, he probably shouldn't be. And it's like, well, you probably should have kept your mouth shut on that one. But I think that is an important thing. As we think about Peter, we should think about him as somebody who, who, who is constantly speaking, maybe before he's thinking, who's constantly acting before he's kind of doing uh, and, and this is, again, something that, that captured my kind of attention of Peter and made him super relatable to me. Because in my own life, that is probably uh, the life and the characteristic and the personality that I have lived out. I tend to be somebody who, who, who speaks and, and, and really probably more than anything who acts maybe before thinking. And spontaneity is something that uh, has gone, again, just like Peter in my own life, extremely well for me in times where quick action is what's supposed to happen. And then at times it has not gone so well. Uh, we were thinking and even recalling as I was telling, uh, talking with my wife about what we were going to be talking about this morning and talking about different stories, uh, one of the ones that came up that probably ennobilizes the spontaneity in my own life was uh, actually a story that predates Jill, uh, and it was another girl uh, that, was, uh, that had caught my fancy in life, and we all know men in the room, uh, when that happens, that our brain cells and our IQ immediately takes a turn for the worst, uh, and combine that turn, uh, that, that turn of my brain cell and my lowering of IQ with the spontaneity of action. Uh, and I remember one particular moment that we were hanging out with all of our friends. Uh, we were at somebody's kind of little lake uh, pond in their, in their uh, kind of countryside home. And they had kind of similar to this. They had a dock that kind of went out into the water and oversat. And, uh, and, and we were just kind of hanging out at night and kind of doing her things. And she had kind of set her jacket. She had gotten warmer. And so she took off her jacket and she had set it onto the rail. And, uh, and sure enough, as we're, you know, talking, horsing around, moving, doing whatever, one of the other guys knocks her coat off into the water. And so I'm like... Here's my moment, my action, knight in shining armor, right? I'm going to jump in, and I'm going to save her jacket. And this is going to be my bold kind of move to, to, to come in and rescue the day and to show her that I can be the shining knight who can solve all of her woes in life, and she'll immediately fall in love with me, right? That was, that was my thought in action. And so I, without thinking much about this, ran straight over, didn't really say anything to anybody else, jumped up onto the rail, went to jump on into the lake to save her jacket from the abyss. And uh, this was pre-cell phones and all that stuff, so I didn't really worry 
worry about getting anything wet. But as I jumped up over the rail and proceeded to push off, my back leg slipped off of the rail. So instead of like, in my mind, the way it played out very quickly was this very like heroic, like casting through the air jump and like landing triumphantly in the water and rescuing her jacket, turned more into this weird like kind of half, like half feet first, half foot dive. As I'm like going in, and instead of landing next to the jacket, I just land plumb straight on top of it. And if you know anything about like the, the, the lakes around the Dallas area, all that black, thick, rich soil, uh, the, you know, the, of course the lake, the, the first 12 feet of it is nothing but just this swampy, gross, like thick mud. And so instead of rescuing her jacket from just floating on the top, I proceeded to land on it and sink it down into the mud. <laughs> only to pull it out and like, uh, this didn't work out so well for me and my whole cascade. And, but, you know, God's sovereignty is one above all things because she didn't fall in love with me in that moment. And then I moved on to meet my lovely wife, Jill. So that, that works out in the end. But in that moment, it certainly wasn't. But I think that this is important. And this is a key concept that we're really going to spend a, spend a good minute, amount of time this morning kind of walking through scripture uh, and reminding ourselves that, that a lot of times, and I know my temptation is a lot of times when I go to God's word and, and I'm reading through something, I can, I can either make it, make it totally academic and I can kind of bring it up about this or I can try to like find all these correlations and, and really kind of drive to what it's meaning. And, and a lot of times in that pursuit, while those things are good and of themselves, sometimes I know I miss the real life kind of beauty of it. That these are real people. That God's story given to us is one that he wove through humanity using his redeemed and fallen creation to kind of come through and convey this message. And so here we have Peter again, and I think it's going to be really important for us to see him as this person, somebody we can relate to, somebody that we can understand, not somebody kind of high and lofty that we just kind of have to put into another box, but somebody who's just real and tangible right there, who's offering his story in such a way that we can relate. And so a lot of our goal this morning is going to be putting ourselves into the picture of the story. So where are we going to be in the story? Well, we're going to, we're going to look specifically at the instance where um, the disciples are out on a boat and a storm has come in and Jesus is not with them but decides to catch up to them. And this is the famous, uh, famous story of Jesus walking on the water where Peter then himself responds to Jesus uh, and gets to walk on the water with him. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open them up. We're going to be in Matthew uh, chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, I do want to point out that there's uh, Bibles in the racks of the chairs in front of you. Uh, and we do always stop and make a mention of this. Uh, I want to make a mention, if you don't have a copy of God's Word that you can call your own, uh, feel free to take that one. Uh, take it home. Consider it our gift to you. We know that you will be blessed with the time that you spend in it. But we're going to be in Matthew uh, chapter 14. And this story is not just told in Matthew, as so many of our stories in the Gospels, uh, a lot of them are told in different places. So this story occurs not only in Matthew chapter 14, but also in Mark 6 and in John 6. And each one of them takes a little bit different kind of highlight or a little bit different perspective. Uh, but Matthew gives us the most kind of, uh, the most detail of the story. So I figured it would be fitting for us to start there. Um, and so where we kind of are picking up, because it's always important to remember where we are in the context. So the disciples have been called. Jesus is continuing his, his ministry. He's teaching parables. He's healing. He's performing miracles, um, all with his disciples by his side. And then most 
kind of immediately, if we would have backed up earlier in this book, we would have seen the miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000. Now, this is 5,000 as counted by Hebrew 5,000, so it's 5,000 men that were counted. So who knows how many are actually there once you had counted the women and children. Um, But we all know that story, and it's probably familiar to us as well. Um, But a crowd surrounds Jesus. He feels uh, compassion for them, so he starts healing the sick. He starts teaching them. Uh, It goes late into the day. All the disciples are like, we got to send them away because it's dinner time. And Jesus says, why? I'm the bread of life, right? Like he knows this truth about himself. Uh, And so he says, what food do we have? have they gather two fish five loaves from a from a small child and Jesus begins to bless it break it and they feed the multitudes right we feed 5,000 plus people could be 10,000 people by the time you count everybody Uh, he feeds the multitudes and even at the end they have the 12 basketfuls so we just have come off of this miraculous story Okay, and I think that's really important because it's one of the key concepts that we're going to be moving into this story. Jesus has just done something amazing in front of his disciples. He has just fed 5,000 people from nothing. They watched and observed this miracle. And this has been their story so far. They've heard Jesus' teaching. They've watched him heal the sick. They've watched him perform miracles. And here they are at last just continuing on in their journey. And so it picks up in verse 22 of Matthew 14. And it says this, immediately he made his, the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way off from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Again, so that we can kind of get a right perspective of this, we kind of got to set the scene a little bit. Now, I don't know, uh, again, for y'all, like I already mentioned for myself, my, this is one of the first Bible stories I was introduced as a little kid. Now, in my time of that, and most of y'all could probably relate to me in this, uh, how that was taught to me as a child was in Sunday school with the prehistoric version of PowerPoint that is the greatness of flannel graph, right? You know, remember flannel graph, right? Yes, flannel graph has a fondness in many of our hearts, right? So the teacher had the board that was there for y'all who are aren't familiar with flannel graph. They had the flannel board that was there that had kind of the C on the background, and she would then open up her folder and begin to pull out different little pictures of different little felt uh, kind of characters and begin to act out or tell the story by sticking it and going on there. And so my whole kind of picture of this for the vast majority of my life reading this story was when I closed my eyes and I thought of Peter and Jesus walking on the water, uh, what I saw was just kind of this, sm- this smooth little kind of background of this nice little sea and then this little like uh, Jesus that was nicely dressed in his robe with a blue sash. I don't know why Jesus always had a blue sash, but he did, but his blue sash and then he walked out onto the sea that was something kind of like the hopping of the flannel graph that kind of went out and that's how, that's how the story was pictured to me. But I don't think that that is accurate. Even by what we just read, uh, if we just think about it as that, we're missing out on the the setup here. Matthew's taking some intentionality to set up the story extremely well, uh, and one of the things that that immediately goes off of my flannel graph picture is that I had a smooth, calm sea. Well, that's not the sea that we run into here, right? For the wind was against them, and they're beaten by the waves. A storm has moved in. So Jesus sent off the disciples. They've hopped in their little boat. They're out into the middle of the water, and then a storm has moved in. Now, this is, this is something that's very common to the Sea of Galilee, because the Sea of Galilee, for any of y'all who have been there, and if you haven't been there, this is a quick uh, shameless plug for our Israel trip that uh, Pastor Chris is leading this summer, and so if you uh, have never gotten a chance to visit and see, uh, sign up, ask Elizabeth more about that information, and go and get to see it. Um, but I myself got to go and witness this about a, a year and a half ago, uh, and got to actually see for the first 
time the actual Sea of Galilee. And the first thing that was striking in my mind was how small it was. Because I think I read sea, and I think this huge, vast place. Uh, but it's not actually all that big. Um, in a little bit of comparison to a lake similar to us that is closest by, Lake Palestine, which is right down the road. Uh, lake Palestine is about 18 miles uh, long, and in its widest is about four miles across. Well, the Sea of Galilee is only 13 miles long, and in its widest, about eight miles across. Uh, the, section, the section here spoken of, um, when you kind of draw lines of where the disciples are sent out uh, into the Capernaum, uh, from, from start to finish on the other side is about a two-mile stretch of water. So it's not a terribly big place. So you combine it not being a terribly big body of water, also with the terrain that is all against us. And this is what this slide, if you can kind of tell, it's a little bit dark. We may have to lighten that up for next service. But uh, you can kind of tell this is seen down into the blue part into the middle is the actual sea. And on three quarters of the sea on all sides are, are mountainsides. And there's the cliffs on Jordan on the far side, I think, that we're seeing there. We're on the Israel side here, uh, looking back onto it. But there's, there's, it's a, Israel is a rocky, kind of mountainous place. And so there's these, these big kind of mountains on either side that drop down very quickly uh, and then come to the sea. And so what happens so often is the sea will go from very, very calm to then having a mountain wind or storm break over the top of the mountain, rush down, and immediately stir up the waters and make it then very tumultuous. And that's where we get storms like this, where the sea is then now being, the wind comes down and it bats the boat and tosses in the waves. And so it can go from very, very calm and very, very easy to very, very tumultuous and, and windy at this. Not only on that do we get this sense that this is, this is hard going now because of the wind. We also know it's hard going by this little timestamp that's thrown in here uh, in verse 25, saying that it's the fourth watch of the night. Now, the fourth watch of the night, that we don't really use those terms today, but the fourth watch of the night then is between 3 and 6 a.m. That's the fourth watch. So if we're thinking about this, again, putting ourselves into their shoes, the disciples' shoes at this point, they're sent off, and they're sent to go across, and they have about a two-mile stretch of land to do. We know it's post-dinner time, and so they've gotten, got, a good, got a good start on this, and they're trying to get across, and they are somewhere between six and nine hours in this boat trying to do just a two-mile stretch. So if we were, again, putting ourselves into their shoes, we need to be picturing not just kind of a calm little flannel graph sea, but one that is probably a little bit more terrifying. You have a, 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 a boat that is, that is uh, made just simply out of, out of wood. You have no laps of, of, there's no modern technology. There's no lights. You have a dark uh, and windy and 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 tumultuous sea that these fishermen are just trying to get across these disciples and we have them just battling it out for hours and hours and hours trying to get across trying to overcome this this storm so if we were to put ourselves into the shoes of the disciples right now we should probably put ourselves somewhere between really tired uh, really cranky really scared all the emotions that you can imagine yourself, if you were in, that shoe, in their shoes, should be kind of going over you right now as we're kind of reading this. Uh, and so these disciples, here they are on, a, on this, this dark, dark day, tired, uh, beaten by the sea. Uh, and then we have Jesus showing up again, yet again, and doing something miraculous, right? We have him walking on the sea. Uh, and again, this is something that I, get, I just can't, I don't, I don't know. At this point, I'm going to say, we're speculating, right? Uh, this is one of those great things that I hope we have DVR, uh, 
or we can like press rewind and show things up in heaven of like, okay, show me how this really went down. Like, tell me how this is. Uh, because it, it may be that Jesus goes and walks onto the water and, you know, he does this, I am Jesus, so all is calm around me. And like the, the storm isn't calm, but all the sea around him is calm and he can walk out kind of casually. I, I don't know. Uh, or maybe it is that Jesus is out there running up and down the waves, right? Like this is kind of the, this is the near ancient East equivalent of parkour. And Jesus is like running around and like running up the top and jumping off and like having a blast out there. Maybe that is the case because in one of the other gospels, it tells us that Jesus wasn't even intending to stop for the disciples. I don't know why that's thrown in there. Maybe it was because he was having a fun time running down on the waves and he was gonna go on. But he looks and he notices them and he decides to walk over and take this teachable moment and interact with his disciples. Uh, but whatever way it is, we have Jesus walking out onto this water, entering in miraculously, showing that he is, he is above all creation and that creation submits to him. He doesn't submit to it. And then we have the disciples. Uh, we have disciples interacting with him, uh, and we have their classic reaction. Look down in verse 26. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. This is fascinating, fascinating again to me um, about how the disciples missed Jesus, how that they wouldn't expect this to be Jesus. I mean, uh, for goodness sake, he just fed 5,000 plus people. Uh, they've, they've been spending their entire lives walking and following this man where he is doing the miraculous and constantly defying all expectations and showing up and doing things that are beyond any human's control. And so I would think at this point, if I was putting myself in, in their shoes, I would hope that I would have seen somebody walking out on the water and been like, that's amazing. What is that? Well, clearly it's Jesus because this is what he's been doing this whole time. Uh, but for me to think that and think negatively of the disciples, probably is me also being uh, a little bit arrogant even in my own life because how many times uh, do us all miss the miraculousness of our Lord and Savior in our lives and everyday things, right? And so I think that we got to give the disciples a little bit of benefit of the doubt. They're tired. Uh, they're scared of the water. They see this, this figure walking out on them, uh, and they, they mistake it. They don't understand uh, it is Jesus. And so they, they come to then uh, call out and cry out in fear that it is a ghost. And Jesus responds to them and says, gives them comfort, saying, take heart, have courage, know that it is me. It is I, Jesus, don't be afraid. Now, we, we know that if we were skipping over and reading John's account of this, we know that uh, the disciples saw the feeding of the 5,000, and they believed that Jesus fed the 5,000, but they didn't rightly respond in worship to it. They didn't really fully understand. Uh, and I think this is a key understanding going into this, because here they are again, seeing a miraculous thing, but this time, if we skipped ahead to the end of the verses here, this time they, they do respond with right worship. And this is, this is really interesting. This is the first time that the disciples, we have recorded in the Gospels, of worshiping Jesus. And this is a theme all the way through Matthew. In Matthew 2, we have the Magi worshiping Jesus. And in Matthew 8, we have the leper worshiping Jesus. In Matthew 9, we have the synagogue leader worshiping Jesus. And this is the first time, 14 chapters in, this is the first time that the disciples respond with worship. But before that worship, we get Peter's immediate account of this. Because all the other, all the other gospel accounts the one, uh, skip now, they end with worship, and then they just skip with them immediately on the shore. 
And I don't know what that immediate thing is. Is that a, uh, to do our, our lead pastor uh, some credit in his absence? Is that a Star Trek thing where they just like beam up Scotty and then like beam down? Is that for our younger generation, like a Harry Potter apparition thing of like, poof, and now they're over here? I don't know what that immediate is in all the other accounts, but it just skips them ahead to the shore. Uh, but Matthew takes a moment and expounds a little bit more before they skip ashore and tells them uh, kind of a, a reflection of Peter's response to this whole situation and how Peter responds in his version of worship before the disciples glean from him and rightly worship as well. And so look down in verse 28 and we'll see what Peter does. So here's, here's Jesus walking on the water. He's calmed them down. He says, it is I. And so Peter and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to seek, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, and saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? This is, this is I feel like, a remarkable part of the story. Jesus, uh, Jesus here performing this miracle, walking on the water. Peter recognizes this miracle after Jesus has calmed them down, saying that, No, 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 calm down, take heart, don't be afraid, it is me. And then what does Peter do here? He responds with a bold request. He responds to the Lord and Savior's miracle with a bold request, uh, and he says, if it is really you, call me out onto the water. I think that is, that is, uh, this, is this is obviously commendable of Peter because I think Jesus ref, uh, responds to him in the affirmative. Um, I don't, he says, come on out, come follow me. I don't know if like then again what this is, like how Peter responds. I don't know if he's like, okay, here I go, guys. Like, I'm going out in the water. Like, and then he kind of, you know, I don't know if he like kind of does this, like dips his toe in a little bit or kind of tries to ease himself off or, or if he's just like, all right, it's Jesus, let's go, woo, and tries to like jump in. I, I, again, I don't, I don't know. But what I do know is that Peter gets out of the boat and he gets onto the water and he starts walking. He now recognizes Jesus doing something miraculous and, and, and invites or asks himself to go and be with Jesus doing the miraculous thing. This is a right concept of worship. That if we are to understand, again, this idea of telling the gospel, to live, teach, and to tell the gospel so that all may encounter the living God. The, part of that understanding is, is that when we have encountered the living God, we must respond rightly in worship, inviting ourselves as he has invited us out to join him in the miraculous. And that's exactly what Peter does here in this response of worship. He sees Jesus doing something miraculous, and he knows that it is better for him to be out there in the waves with Jesus doing the miraculous than in the safety of the boat. And I think this is a vital concept for us in our Christian lives. Because so many times I know for uh, me that, it is, that it, is, it is the safety of the boat that I want to try to call the shots. It is that, it is, I see Jesus, he's saying, telling me to, to be calm, and I'm saying, yes, Lord, that is you, that's amazing you're walking out on the water. I'll, I applaud you, this is great, this is so phenomenal for me to get to see as I'm slowly backing up into like my chair that's safely on kind of my comfort zone. But the call of Christian life isn't to do that. So here we have, we have Peter getting out, getting on the water, walking around. He, he gets distracted by the waves of the sea. Fear, rightly so, in our own understanding, distracts him from Jesus. And so he has to call out. He now moves from a point of worship in response of, of action now to a point of worship in a response of desperation. 
And I think that's appropriate for us as well. He responds and realizes his own condition, unable to do it on himself, and he rightly and desperately needs the Lord. So he calls out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reaches out his hand and pulls him up out of the water. And then we have this kind of, this, this phrase at the end. Oh, oh, ye of little faith, as I was taught in the King James Version, right? Oh, you of little faith, why doubt? I think for the most of my life, I took this as a bad rap for Peter. That was, that was the way it was communicated to me. That if Peter really had faith, he would have never sank. And he would have been out there on the water, and he would have been with Jesus, and if he would have kept his eyes on Jesus, he would have never gotten distracted. And so this is Peter. This is kind of a rebuke of Peter, right? This is Peter saying, uh, you, you know, I didn't, I didn't have it all together. And Jesus is calling that out of me. Like he's saying, you have little faith. You need to have more faith. If only you had more faith, look at all what you could accomplish. And whereas there's probably some truth that this is a rebuke from Jesus, I don't know if it's as negatively as I grew up with. I don't know if we should take it as negatively as I just presented it. Because we see Jesus use this term, you have little faith, in a number of times throughout the Gospels. And a lot of times, as he's using it, it's a little bit more kind-hearted, a little bit more kindred in, this, in, this, in the setting or the situation. It's a little bit more of a compliment, kind of a you have little faith. It's almost as if Jesus is coming down and saying, yes, Peter, you had some faith. That is awesome. And guess what, Peter? There's a lot more faith that you can have. You have just a little now. And think of all the faith that you could have even on top of this. The same way that I relate this even in my own mind is I even think of my daughter Madeline, right, who's, who's three years old. And so just at that, that time or just at that stage or that age where uh, she is, we're beginning to kind of try to give her responsibilities of her own that she can own. And then, uh, and then for me as, as, a, as a parent, this uh, excites me in two ways because I get to see my offspring growing and learning and having more responsibilities. And plus, as my dad said to me, the only reason I have children is so that I had to do less chores. And I see that also coming to fruition as well as she now takes out my little diapers and things like that to the trash. It's a beautiful thing. But in, in even of all these things, one of the responsibilities that we have given uh, our little girl Madeline is just that she helps set the table, right? You know, just a simple, easy understanding. And I remember some of the first times that, that she, you know, I would, I would invite her over and, and we'd say, all right, Madeline, let's set the table together. Mommy's getting the food out. And, you know, we'd go to the drawer and we'd pull the napkins and we'd get the knife and we'd get the fork and we'd walk around and we'd together put them all out. And I remember the very first time that she went and did it by herself. Right? Like it wasn't just like, hey, Madeline, like I'm calling you over. It's our time to do our job. Let's put him out. But she went over to, she was tall enough, and it was set out, and she went over, and she grabbed the napkins and grabbed the fork and knife, and she went around, and, and she set them all out. Now, you can imagine then under, with, with her doing it alone, it wasn't nearly as precise as me doing it. There were, the napkins were all askew, and like there was two settings where one chair is, and you know, the knife and the fork were on the wrong side. And, you know, and, 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 and here she is like beaming with her excitement and like coming over and saying, Daddy, look, I've set the table. And if I came up and if I took Jesus' rebuke here and I was like, oh, you have little faith. Like if I would have walked in that situation and been like, Madeline, I mean, you almost got it right. Like, thanks. But you know, like, look, there's two settings here. Let's move this one over here, the knife and fork over here. If I constantly came into the situation and just rebuked her in that, I would have, I mean, y'all would all think I'm a terrible parent and rightly so. It would be an inappropriate response. And that wasn't my response. When I walked in and I saw her doing this effort, I mean, it was exciting. I was like, Madeline, like, great job. Like, that was awesome. But I still also had a, a, a moment to then encourage her and encourage her to do something good and to continue to do that good thing. 
right? And so I said, that is awesome, Madeline. Here, why don't you come with me? And let me, let's move this one around because, again, we need, we need one of these napkins at every chair where somebody sits. And so we kind of adjusted, but not in a way that condemned her or shut her down, only in a way that took her natural excitement and pride in her response, which was right, and just bolstered it all the more. I directed that the right, the right way. And I think this is more apt or more accurate of our call of our Savior here. Oh, you of little faith. I don't think it is a condemnation, you of little faith. I think it is an excitement, you of little faith. You did it, Peter. And why I think this probably most anything else is when I stop and I remember where we are in the story and I look at everybody else who's hearing Jesus' words because who else is being addressed here inadvertently? Who else is hearing Jesus' encouragement of Peter as having little faith? The other disciples. But where were they? In the boat. They didn't get out of the boat. The story doesn't continue with Peter stepping out on the water first and then all the other disciples going, it worked for him, I'm all in, and jumping in. I don't know if for years and years later if this was one of those laments of the disciples as they're sitting around a campfire one night talking and, you know, and, and John's kicking himself and being like, oh gosh, remember when you got to walk on water, Peter? Man, I'm so mad I've missed out on that opportunity. I can't believe I didn't get out of the boat. I don't know if Peter, you know, in the times of, of, of just fun that they're roughhousing together, disciples are ragging on each other and he's like, oh yeah, well remember the time who walked on water? Yeah, yeah, that's me. Like, I, again, I don't, who knows how this plays out? But immediately in the situation, what we see here is we see disciples in the boat and Peter out of the boat. And I think that's what, that's what Jesus is encouraging of Peter. I think he, Peter has realized who Jesus is, and he's realizing that it is safer for me to be with Jesus outside of my own comfort zone, participating in the miraculous, than it is for me to do what the other disciples choose, which is to kind of self-exist in my false sense of security that I'm in control. That's a beautiful picture of what's going on. Now, how does this kind of relate? What do, what do we do with this? How does this come into kind of our, our, our theme here to tell the gospel, living a life of compassion and of courage? Well, I think that there's a couple concepts I want to highlight here at the end, both under, the, the, under this understanding. And the first I want to look at is this idea of compassion. How will we respond to Jesus' compassion here? Because I think this is, a, this is a story that is earmarked from start to beginning with a compassionate Lord and Savior who's entered into a situation where the disciples are, are tired, they're afraid. Remember, again, putting ourselves in their shoes. They've been going at this for quite some time. It's the middle of the night. And Jesus, who is just walking by, stops in that moment and chooses to enter in compassionately to them. He makes a deliberate, momentary choice to say, I will now come over here and interact with my disciples. Um, Jesus is compassionately entering into their world. And yet, how interesting it is that Jesus doesn't enter their world by calming the sea. You ever thought about that? Jesus doesn't then walk across this water, running up and down the waves, see a scared and, and alone and tired disciples, and then say, oh, no, I need to enter into this situation. <laughs> Boom, calm sea. And then I walk over and I interact with him. And how? No, instead, he then walks in and shows compassion amidst the turmoil, amidst the waves crashing the boat. And I think of this in so many terms in my own life of how many times do I want Jesus' compassion on my definable terms? How many times do I, in the moment of on the boat, scared, tired, in life, whatever situation that that is that is going to mirror this or resemble this, in those moments, how many times do I stop and cry out desperately to the Lord, just fix this, put it right, 
I need your compassion, and I need it this way, by everything made calm. That would be me dictating to my master, but Jesus is dictating to us because we are supposed to be, again, a life of submission. We're supposed to submit ourselves to him. Now, how great is it that our Lord shows up here, not just putting things comfortably in their terms, but miraculously interacting with them that calls them out into something greater, into something more, into the participation with him. And how, how, many, how often is that true of our own lives? And in the moment that we have the turmoil and we just want Jesus to fix it, the moment that he doesn't fix it and put everything calm, then we miss him showing up and doing the miraculous amidst it. I think it's a, a, a cool concept to see here that the compassion of our Lord Jesus here is not just coming in and making it easy for them, but he's coming in and making it right for them. He's making it what is best for them. He's giving them an opportunity to respond with worship. I think that's what we're supposed to do here. Not that we call upon the name of the Lord only to put things into our name the way we want it done. We call upon the name of the Lord because he is the only one to put it right in his terms. And so are we demonstrating that in our own lives? Are we seeing Jesus' response to our own lives with the compassion that he has, stepping into our lives and saying, you know what, it is rocky right now, but you can count on me. Cast all your burdens and your anxieties, right? And I am the way, the truth, and the life. Follow after me that this is life and life abundant. Not one that, I'm gonna, that is going to go right in all your ways, so the way you would want to do it, but one that is right in the sense that it is going to call you to desperately need upon me. And do we take that, Jesus' offering gift into this, of compassion into our own lives, and go into the world in the same way? Do we see our neighbors struggling, fighting on the driveway? Do we see our coworkers coming in distraught, upset about finances? Do we see the world around us in the turmoil of the waves? And do we take ourselves out of our boat and go into their situation? Maybe not to just kind of calm it or put it all right or try to kind of placate it over, but to meet them and see that it is broken and that it is real and that we can be there and be broken and real with them as well. I think that is the beauty where we get to demonstrate and reflect the great compassion of the Lord to us, to those who are around us. And in doing that, in reaching out and in inter interacting with the world that is around us and with their heartbreak, do we do so with courage? How do we reflect Peter's courage here? You know, we've, we've talked about it, but our, our uh, Pastor Chris is, is an um, avid definer. He loves working definitions, and his working definition for courage is uh, one that chooses to do right despite fear. And so are we, in our own lives, looking out at the opportunities that are around us, the call of Christ, who has given us an immense gift, do we take that gift and squander it to ourselves, or do we go out and do we extend that gift to others, rightly so, as he's called us to be ambassadors of him? And in that, do we, do we take it out with courage? And there's a key concept here in this idea of courage of doing right despite fear. It's not doing right in absence of fear. It's not that you're not supposed to be afraid. It's just that despite that fear, you're supposed to continue to do right, to not be swayed. I guess if we were to put it in the simplest terms of fear, are we willing to get out of the boat for Jesus? Are you going to be the disciples who just say, yeah, that's great work that you're doing. I'm good right here. Are we taking the moments and saying, like, oh, that looks scary. It seems like an opportunity that I don't know how it's going to work out. 
I don't understand how the storm isn't going to be calmed. I don't get how I'm going to be able to bring anything to the situation. I don't really even understand how me involving myself in this isn't also just going to bring a mess upon my life or isn't also just going to bring maybe even rejection in my life. That as I come in and enter into those who are lost around me in tumultuous times, am I not then just going to be rejected or ostracized for stepping in? Despite all of those fears, you still have that choice. Are you going to stay in your boat or are you going to get out of the boat? Are you going to go despite that fear and go into the world and say, you know what, I see where you are. It's not that I'm going to fix it or I have all even the answer to fix it, but I know who is the one who will put all things right in the end. Because this is the great news of the gospel. This is what we'll be talking about next week and a couple weeks to come. Is that us in humanity in our hopeless situation, that as we have chosen ways not of God, that God in that moment did not leave us alone in our hopelessness of separation, but said, you know what, it is, it is in everything and nothing that you have of yourselves that can bring yourself to me, so you know what, I'll come to you. And he does so in the most beautiful way that I would have never chosen if I were God, but by he himself suffering. By Jesus entering into this tumultuous sea and getting a little bit wet, getting a little bit beaten by the storm, almost beaten to the point that obviously we carry that illustration all the way out, beaten to death. That, the, that God himself chose to interact with his humanity, suffering onto his own self, so that he can meet them truly in the human condition of where they are, so that we can relate to him and say that there's no difference in the plight that I have and the plight that our Savior came to take. And then in that, he lived the life that we couldn't live, which was perfect. Took the, the penalty of our sin, which is death on the cross, and then showed that his life was perfect to demonstrate the greatness of him being able to conquer death by him, he himself raising the third day and then making the call to us all to say, follow me. Believe in me, confess with your mouth, believe in your hearts that Jesus is Lord, that his death and that his resurrection was enough to pay the price. And then now that kickstarting the great adventure that it is of us being Christ followers. Understanding that that is a great and gracious gift given to us and how could we then not go and give it to the world? So let's do this. As we close in the time uh, of invitation, I want you to, 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 yes, sing, respond to the words as Stevie's going to come back up and lead us. Uh, but then also pause and think. Maybe it is that this morning you haven't actually received that gift. Maybe it is the step of confessing and believing. You need to start this journey. And if that is it, today is the day of salvation. Come, come, ask. We'd love to pray. Maybe it is that you have started that and you're well along in the journey and there's somewhere in this story that you can relate to of you needing to get out of the boat. If there's somebody in your life that, you, that the Lord has put into your heart right now, even convicting you now and saying, this is where you have an opportunity. Go, do. Share my compassion that I've given you as compassionate to others and do so with courage. And maybe this is a time to reflect on that and to pray desperately, Holy Spirit, I'm gonna need you to do that because I can't do it on my own. I can't walk on water. Or maybe it is simply that, that today you've had some conversations with some other folk and you're like, you know what, I need, I need to be with other people who are getting out of the boat. And so I don't have a church home and I'd like to make this a church home. And if you've met with some other people who have had that conversation, then we'd love for you to come forward and proclaim that. However it is, in whatever way, I invite you now to stand and respond and worship.